But the whole picture of a wedding and a marriage, two people entering into a love relationship that is binding forever or until death do us part, um, that is based entirely on faith is a biblical picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Did you know that? He reveals himself to us. We see his character. He invites us into a committed relationship with him. And we step into it wholeheartedly based in faith. We believe him or we don't. That is the Christian life is a faith relationship. Just like marriage is a faith relationship. Because all love relationships are based on faith. Legal relationships like your employment or other relationships are not based in faith. They are based in law. But the Lord loves us and he wants us to choose to love him in return. Love has sacrifice. But love has reward. And without you making the commitment, you will not experience the rewards. You will not grow. You will not make discoveries about yourself and about your spouse or about the Lord that that you wouldn't, wouldn't have known, could have known any other way. And so Luke 9 is a pivotal place in the relationship of the disciples with Jesus. So far, they've been watching. A disciple is a student. That's what it means to be a disciple. They are under the instruction of their teacher. Luke 6, Jesus said the student becomes like the teacher. And it's really great to just watch Jesus. It's exciting just to follow along and see what he is doing. Healing people and dealing with the the religious leaders. Casting out demons, raising the dead. That's pretty exciting stuff. But at Luke 9, it shifts, and now Jesus is going to put the disciples on the spot and say, it's your turn. Have you ever had that experience with the Lord? Where a neighbor shows up or a family member, they call you because you're the Christian, and you're supposed to have the answer. And you're thinking, I have no idea what to do. It's at those moments where the Lord is going to bring out of you all he's put into you. And it's in those moments, you're really going to learn things about the Lord and about yourself you didn't know. It's scary, but it's extremely exciting to move forward in this. Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him or he who comes to God must first must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder 
of those who diligently seek him. That's a great promise. Diligently seek after the Lord. And you have this promise that there is a reward for you in it. People have two great prayers in life. I've shared this once before. In all of our life and in all of my years of ministry, I have boiled it down that people have two prayers that are the most common prayers in life. The first one is, God, what is your will for my life? Have you all prayed that prayer? The second prayer comes after you get that one answered. And it is, God, do I have to do that? You imagine that when you discover God's will for your life, all your problems going to go away. You're going to have peace, perfect peace. People will like you. Everything kind of falls into place. And while there is a sense of purpose and peace and the power of God, the weight of the responsibility of that calling is something that you didn't count on. It's something that will surprise you and will require a sacrifice that you didn't really want to pay. Just like marriage, you thought it was going to be easy, hard theoretically, but not as I didn't know this guy was going to be such an idiot is, you know, he was perfect when we were dating or I thought I was going to fix him as soon as we got married. but you have to move forward. And when the Lord shows you, this is what I've called for you to do. This is what I want you to do with your life. You're safe in doing that thing that the Lord gives you to do. Now there are four instructions or four commands that we're going to look at in verses one through 26 of Luke chapter nine. And in each of these, the Lord is telling the disciples to do something. Rather than what we're not just watching what the Lord is doing. He's saying, now I want you to do this. I want you to do this. It's, it's a very significant change in how he's relating to them. The first one, he tells them, it's time for you to go and preach. They've been watching him go from town to town. Now it's their turn. Verses one through six, Luke writes, Then he called the 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither staffs nor bag nor bread for money, nor bread nor money. And do not take two tunics, do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went throughout the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is exciting. Do you remember the first time you stepped out and witnessed to somebody or went on a missions trip or something, and you saw God work through your life. I remember, I remember coming home from my first missions trip um, back in the 80s. 
went on a tour with a band, a Christian band to Australia, came home, and there were probably 300 teenagers that had accepted the Lord on that trip. And on the plane, I'm thinking, I could do this again. This is way better than just playing in other music situations, way better than just going on tour or other stuff. And it was like the Lord said, did you like that, Terry? I said, yep. He goes, okay, that's it. I had no idea I would ever do this, much less stand in front of people and preach like this. I'm the person who would come in and sit in the back and hope that nobody would talk to me. I'm not an outgoing person, although I am exceptionally good looking. (laughs) You're supposed to laugh. Thank you very much. That discovery of doing the very thing God called you to do will move you forward in your life. And it is so, so important. They discover that the very power of God was working in their own lives to do what they were only watching Jesus do before. Preach the gospel. Cast out demons. Heal the sick. And now these ordinary people, really just like us, fishermen and tax collectors, they're out doing this work that is changing lives. It's really, really exciting. Jesus talks about the fact they're going to face opposition. Not everybody's going to love them, but they have to keep moving. He tells them not to take, you know, supplies for the trip. Don't take extra supplies. You know, uh, later in their ministry, the Lord will tell them to take extra supplies. But there's an important lesson here. They had to learn that as they stepped out in faith, God was with them and God was going to provide for them. That is a huge lesson in serving the Lord. Because what if I make this decision to serve the Lord and we don't have enough money or we don't have enough this? We have seen the Lord provide for us through many, many years of ministry. The Lord always provides. Joshua 1, 8 and 9. The Lord said to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's, it's just tremendous to discover that in your own life. And the only way you personally discover this is by personally stepping forward in obedience to serve the Lord. Now, granted, there are lots of things that We could say in the church, we need volunteers for this, and you could step forward and do it. And that's great. But what I'm really talking about is God's personal calling on your life. It may be in some ministry here at the church, but it may be in some personal area in your life as well. And it may take a little bit of trial and error to figure out what that is. And it's okay if you try something and it doesn't work out. 
keep moving. But here's what we absolutely know is that God loves you. I know that God loves you. I know that he's prepared a good work for you to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. And I know he's preparing you for that work. And that when you discover what it is, that's when you will find that sense of real purpose and peace in your life. The reward of obeying the Lord and living for more than just your personal gratification. You can be a Christian and live for your own life. Absolutely. So you might say, do I have to do this to be a Christian? No, you don't have to do this to be a real Christian any more than you have to serve your spouse to be married. You can be a jerk. But if you want to become one with your spouse, you will lay down your life to serve them. If you want to discover God's purpose for your life, you will set aside yourself to serve him. We'll see that at the end of our study a bit more. The second instruction for the disciples is for them to feed thousands of people with a few loaves and fishes. You know this story of how the Lord blesses a few loaves and fishes, but there's a little bit more to this story than how the Lord blesses a few loaves and fishes and feeds thousands of people. Pick up in verse 10, Luke writes, and the disciples or the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Now they're coming back from this little missions outing and they are excited. They are excited about what the Lord did. And he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who were in need of healing. When the day began to wear away, the 12 came to him and said, said to him, send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place. But he said to them, verse 13, note this verse 13. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus is deliberately putting them to the test. They've gotten so used to Jesus just doing everything for them. Moms, my mother did everything for me. I don't think I ever made my bed once in my whole growing up life. Jesus doesn't just baby you over and over. He teaches you, does it for you, carries you for a long time. And when he thinks you're ready, he goes, now it's your turn. Wait. We had an arrangement here. I'll follow you and you take care of me. He said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes. Unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. 
So they're counting the heads of the houses. So however many women and children are along with this, we don't know. But it could easily be two, three times the number of the 5,000. We don't know. So whatever it is, the few loaves and fishes are not enough. He said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples and set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. There's just so much here. This is the kind of passage in the Bible where you should read it and read it and read it because all of the details here mean something. Obviously, Jesus wants to provide for these people rather than send them away. The main lesson is he's putting the disciples on the spot and he wants them to step up. And don't just be a dependent. Now exercise this faith that you have been given through all these, these times of watching me. Now here's the lesson. They took what they had, a few loaves and fishes. And let me tell you, there is never enough resources to meet the need in ministry. Of all the needs in our church, there's not enough resources. Because the needs of the people are keep, keep growing. There's more people. There's more opportunities for outreach. And whatever is the expenses that we need, we're just saying, Lord, provide. And so the Lord provides through you. You, where did they get the loaves and fishes? It was a boy or somebody there offered his lunch. And you might think, well, this is what I got. I got a hundred bucks. I'll put in the offering plate. But what is that for the needs of the people? Here's the lesson. We offer what we have. And then the Lord takes what we give and somehow he blesses it and breaks it and makes it enough. How that happens, I don't know. And over the years and years of ministry, we will say, well, the offering wasn't very good. And somehow the Lord provides. Every pastor can tell you those stories. And so we trust the Lord to provide. Uh, my wife's sister, I'm thinking of uh, Mary. Uh, my sister-in-law has a homeless ministry in Modesto, California. She weekly once or twice goes out in the street and feeds the homeless. And this one particular story, she had a whole bunch of cans of soup. She dumped, opened these cans, put them in a pot and heated them up. And she was going from location to location, feeding the homeless. She got to her final location and there wasn't enough in the pot. She thought, but she kept scooping and more scoops kept coming out of that pot. It was, it, it, she kept thinking, I don't, she would tell somebody, I don't have enough for you, but I'll give you what I have. And there would be another whole bowl full. These kinds of things happen all the time. And so 
it would be easy for you and I to sit back and go, well, we can't go do the ministry. There's not enough. And we have to really stop thinking like that. The Lord provides for what he calls you to do. That is the basic lesson. If the Lord sent you to do it, you will have what you need to go do it. So quit your whining. That was meant to be a voice in my head, but I think I said it out loud. Quit whining. The Lord is able to, to, and so, so often we pastors are guilty of feeling like we have to make it happen. When you've, you've, I know you've known pastors in your life who are stress cases. The occupational hazard of pastors is to feel like we have to make it happen because we're the leader. And I am frankly kind of tired of feeling like that. Thank you. And I, I really, when I came here to your church, to our church, and became the pastor, you had been through COVID, through a move, and a pastor change. And I just frankly said to you and to the staff, I don't know if this is going to work. We need, to, we need people. We need offerings. But the thing was, I am old enough in the ministry that I wasn't going to feel like I had to make it happen. I could come and be here and love you and just enjoy this and say, let's see what the Lord's going to do. And with, I don't have any problem believing the Lord is able to make this work. But the Lord's not obligated to make it work. And if the Lord says, no, I'd like to do something else, I'm okay with that because it's his work. We're not begging God to support our ideas. That's where it gets all distorted. Ministry should never be our ideas that we're having to convince God to go do. God, you know, I started this project and you have to help me out. Going, really? Who's in charge here? Young pastors feel like the work is their work. And we're begging God to bail, them, bail us out. And I have learned that if God wants to do a work in Albany, he's able to make it happen. And so I can just relax and work hard and do it with you. And guess what? Uh, it's, it's working. Yeah. People are here. We have opportunities for outreach. Somehow 10,000 eggs show up. Not sure how spiritual that is, but we're going to reach a lot of people for the Lord. And, and I think the Lord's in it. I think the Lord's in it. So take whatever you have, whatever loaves and fishes, and offer it. And just let the Lord bless it and break it and multiply it. And there was enough for these, this group of people that could have been easily 15,000 plus people. Now, here's the, the reward at the end, not only for the disciples that they got to be a part of it, but when they collected all the fragments, how many baskets were left over? How many? Twelve. That meant that every one of those whiny disciples had their own basket 
as a reminder that there wasn't enough food. But not only did they get to collect their own reminder, but the Lord provided for them as well. There was enough for the multitude plus all of the workers. And so we get to share in the rewards of that. Psalm 37, 25, David said, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. And those are lessons you learn after repeatedly being in a panic and seeing the Lord provide for you. You don't learn these lessons by playing it safe and hiding out in, in your house all the time. It's amazing. This third instruction is for them to make a confession. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's putting them on the spot. I want to hear what you think of who you think I am. Pick up in verse 18. And it happened. As they were alone praying that his disciples joined him. And he asked them saying, who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah and others say that one of the old prophets has risen. He said, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And in another book, one of the other gospels, they record that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now I have a picture for you because the location of where this happens is important. If you've ever been to Israel, how many of you have ever been to Israel? Any hands around the room? This is why a trip to Israel makes so much difference in your life. You've probably read or heard messages on this passage many, many times in your Christian life. I didn't understand it until I stood in this place. This is at Caesarea Philippi. Or on the tour, it's called Banyas. If you see, there is a, a carved out opening to the uh, right in the center of the picture. And then there is a cave over to the left. Now that's a close up of this whole area is this area of Caesarea Philippi. That car carved out opening in the rock cliff is an altar to the god Pan. the god Pan, a Greek god <clears throat> who was a god of fertility, erotic pleasure. And people are gathered in this area committing all kinds of sexual acts out in the open in worship to the god Pan. There would be this belief that Pan might do something at any time that would cause a scare in the people, which gave us the word panic. The word panic comes from people being afraid of the God Pan. They're not only worshiping Pan, they are worshiping other gods in this, this platform, in this area of Caesarea Philippi. And not only are they doing all of these gross acts, Right next to it in that cave to the left, 
is where the beginning of the Jordan River would spring out of the rock. When the Bible talks about living water, it's talking about pure water that comes out of a spring, out of a rock. Jesus is the rock. And so side by side is living water and sexual acts, immorality in worship to the God Pan. That cave was the source of the Jordan River. Jesus takes the disciples to this location deliberately in front of all of this immorality. And he says to them, who do these people think that I am? Well, these people who are religious people, but not godly people, they think you're just one of the prophets. But he says, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the very location where Peter makes this confession. And then Jesus says, I will build my church. And how does it finish? And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What are the gates of hell? Caesarea Philippi, this place of worshiping idols was thought to be a gateway to the underworld. The gates of hell is altars of idolatry. This is where they accessed demonic activity and saw demonic supernatural things happening. Jesus took them. It'd be like taking some of you to Sunset Strip in Hollywood and say, who do you say that Jesus is? In fact, this was way worse than Hollywood. I grew up in L.A. Seeing what the world is really like, we need to make a public confession of who Jesus is. I just want to share this last thing that Jesus says to them. He says, I want you. It's time for you to take up your cross and follow after me. Verse 21. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and he himself is destroyed or lost. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the, and of the holy angels. So after all that they have seen, 
of the evidences that Jesus is the son of God. And Peter finally says, yes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They have a choice. Are they going to keep going with him? Or are they going to turn back? Because he now reveals that he is ultimately going to face the cross. He's going to be betrayed, killed, and yet three days rise again. But the question is, seeing where this is going, am I willing to go with him? Because I don't really like discomfort. I don't know about you, but I would like my life to be comfortable all the time. And I thought that being a Christian meant that God would make my life comfortable all the time. Now, there is comfort for the righteous, but he's going to put us into situations that are sacrificial, that are challenging, that are difficult. But the thing is, we can't go back. After we've seen who the Lord is, you can't just go back and act like you don't know. And really, ultimately, there's no reward in that. There's no peace in that. There's no sense of real purpose in life. In fact, you can live completely for yourself, and it is unfulfilling. One of my best friends that I play music with still grew up in Hollywood. His parents were famous actors. He grew up in the 50s as a child seeing Famous people come to his house, Charlton Heston and all these people. And he was one of those Hollywood children. And he said to me one day, Terry, you know why all of these young Hollywood kids keep getting into trouble, like Paris Hilton and all these people? I said, you know why? He goes, because they have everything they want and they are completely empty. They already have everything they want, and they are completely, completely empty. My friend ended up selling LSD for Timothy Leary in Laguna Beach in the 60s, looking for something. His life was empty. He went out into the desert, into Joshua Tree, took an overdose of LSD to just commit suicide. And he tells me that the Lord met him. And saved him. And he. He became a pastor. And he's still pastoring a church to this day. In Huntington Beach. There is no reward in. Getting the whole world and getting everything you want. It's just empty. There's just nothing to it. There is great reward. In committing your life to the Lord. And I hope you learn that sooner than later. And that's the message we want to tell people that we meet every day. There is great reward. Let's stand together.